1: Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. If you don't know me yet, I'm a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose, organizational logotherapist, inspirational speaker, social scientist, and author. You can learn more about me and how we can work together at EliseCortez.com or Gusto-Now.com. Let me thank my partner and sponsor, WorkProud. We are a perfect collaboration. Everyone wants to know they matter and that the work they do do is meaningful and appreciated. WorkProud is a mobile platform built to encourage employees to share stories and recognize each other's contribution. WorkProud empowers HR and business leaders to create company cultures where all employees are inspired to feel proud of their work and proud of their company. Learn more at WorkProud.com. With us today is Sean Harvey, the Chief Compassion Officer and Compassionate Masculinity Guide at Symponia Men's Studio based in Washington, D.C. Sean is a contributing as a, as a writer, speaker, consultant to an emerging narrative around the next frontier of men's healing and transformation through compassionate masculinity and integrating compassion into traditionally masculine systems and cultures. We'll be talking about his path to his own purpose, why the world needs the work that he does today and the work that he does in service of like his mission. You join us today from Washington, D.C. Sean, Reverend Sean, welcome to Working on Purpose.
2: All uh, right, thank you. Thank you, Elise. It's great to be here.
1: It's amazing to have you with me. And I am really looking forward to this juicy, meaningful conversation. So glad our paths crossed. So to get us started here, this first segment, I really did want to talk more about really who you are and how you became the person that you are. Many people want to understand, how can I discover my purpose? And so in this first part, I hope that in your sharing, they'll start to be able to glean some things for themselves by listening to you to gain access to their own path. So let's talk about just where what you set out to do professionally. I mean, I know you have a bachelor's in industrial organizational psychology, a master's in organizational development, a master's in education and counseling, and then you worked as a consultant on Wall Street and for big media companies. And so this is quite an interesting journey that you've been on.
2: To say the least. <laughs> to say the least. You know, I... Um, I, I pretty much played the game until I turned 40 where I was uh, heading up a consulting division uh, for Wall Street clients. I was a college professor and on my 40th birthday, I had had enough of trying to create magic happen in two hours. And also I think I was just um, tired of the hyper-masculine cultures that were predominating so many organizations. And as a professor of management, I was studying a lot of them. And around the time that I left the firm, an opportunity came along at Eileen Fisher, the the women's fashion company. And the entire business model was based on the feminine, not just feminine leadership, but it was a feminine um, energy company. And it wasn't, it was an interesting place because it wasn't, the structures and systems didn't operate in a way that women were being asked to act like men to succeed in business. But women were able to be in the, the full expression of who they were to succeed in the organization, and they did very well. And so, it really, as a systems thinker, I just was experiencing one system and going to the other, going, "There's something radically different here." And I think how I found my purpose was, um, I, you know, ultimately became the head of purpose, personal transformation, and well-being for the company. But along the way, I did probably five different purpose retreats in the company to discover my own purpose, to look at my own limiting beliefs, to look at my own shadow work, um, to look at my ego work, and to really discover from my journey what I was called to do. Um, and then at Army Fisher, I was also sent to an artist commune for five months in Canada to learn how to incorporate the arts into creative facilitation. And, and that experience was also just transformational and, and got me more steeped in what my purpose and call was. And when I started at Eileen Fisher, you know, quite honestly, I went there so I wouldn't have to work with men again. I left Eileen Fisher realizing I'm supposed to do work with men based on what I learned at Eileen Fisher. I knew it was beyond my pay grade. So then I went to seminary to get the spiritual grounding I needed to be able to hold this work in the way it needs to be held
1: that was probably the most uh beautiful and crisp rendition of a of a life that i think i've ever heard that is so beautiful sean thank you listeners and viewers for those of you who don't know who island fisher is it's important that you recognize just who this company is so they are a b corp women's clothing company with roughly 425 million in annual revenue and 1200 employees across the us uk and canada and they are comprised of 83% women and subscribe fully to and unapologetically to feminine leadership principles and practices. So what I really appreciate is, one, how you found your way and that you actually, did you go knocking at Eileen Fisher's door? Did they find you? It seems a little bit unlikely that that the two of you would meet and want to marry, if you will.
2: <laughs> so uh, our, our sales guy at the, the firm I worked for, said, Hey, I think you should check out this. I think you should try to sell to this company called Eileen Fisher. There's someone there. I think you, you connect with spiritually. And uh, we hit it off and, um, pretty much around the time that I was, and the thing that was interesting was every time I was trying to sell, because at the, at the firm I was really creating, developing creative solutions for, for our clients. So, um, And I just kept trying to sell these offerings and they're like, no, we're good. We already do that. No, we're good. We already do that. I mean, they meditate. There's Tibetan singing bowls in every conference room as every meeting starts with a moment of silence and meditation. So if you have eight meetings a day, you have eight minutes, you have eight moments of silence and meditation. And um, by the time I left, I would just joke. I'm like, I'm going to give you chime coaching now. So you can like allow the reverberation from the, from the singing bowl to just do what it needs to do. And um, so my friend that I was trying to sell to, we had become friends and she said, hey, we're looking for an internal organization development partner. Do you know anyone that might be interested? And I said, you know, honestly, I think I would. And so I applied, went on an eight month interview process and uh, I got the job. But this is, I think this is the pivotal moment that transformed everything. It was the first day on the job And my two bosses sat me down over lunch, and they said these words. They said, Sean, you have proven yourself in the interview process. We now want you to stop proving yourself and learn to be who you authentically are. Mm -hmm. We hired you. We saw when you interviewed with us, we saw your heart, and we saw your polish as a New York City consultant, management consultant. We hired you for your heart, and we want to see less of your polish. We want to Mm -hmm. see you unfiltered and unedited. we're going to help you do that.
1: Wow, what an opportunity.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, So listeners and viewers, as you're listening to this, I want you to really pay attention. This is a thought leadership platform that's advancing the conversation on creating cultures where people thrive, inspirational leaders lead people to their greatness, and business is working at its highest impact. And what we're what we're what you're experiencing and seeing here is consciousness on the rise. And I really just want to showcase that, that this whole notion of spirituality in the workplace and all of these well-being practices that Sean is starting to refer to are becoming more of the norm of the forward-thinking organizations. So I just really want to showcase just how amazing what you've done with your life and where you landed and where, where that's taken you. It's, it's phenomenal.
2: It's very inspiring. Well, you know, I think one thing that, you know, just to kind of take the point one step further, so at Alien Fisher, as part of our, our wellness offerings, we had access to Akashic records readers, medical intuitives, astrologers, as part of our enriched well-being. And so for those who don't know, I, so I ended up seeing an Akashic reader probably on a quarterly, if not biannual basis. And for those who don't know what an Akashic reader is, it's basically someone who channels or can connect with the spiritual guides And they're really telling you how you're in alignment or out of alignment with your soul contract and really looking at your soul DNA. So I think to take the idea of spirituality in the workplace to that degree of how are you aligned um, head, heart and spiritually um, in, in, in the workplace or head, heart and spirit, that integration and the permission to be able to have deep and rich conversations and exploration of that. That makes you a whole person.
1: Mm. You know, that's as you know, totally speaking my language. So, thank you for sharing that. So, you had mentioned in our in our first exchange, I, I think that you said that there were like five experiences that you went through, at Eileen Fisher, that really helped stewards your path to purpose. I know we can't talk about all of them, maybe, but it was that was part of that. Was that one of your experiences that helped?
2: Uh, I would say, yeah, I think the uh, working with the Akasha breeder, <clears throat> doing the purpose workshops and working with our my mentor at Eileen Fisher, who um, was a consultant uh, named Marcelo um, out of Brazil who worked with Ken Wilber and um, and Otto Scharmer. And so we had a lot of uh, Ken Wilber and Otto Scharmer um, influence in the organization along with Frederick Roo. Um And really, as we were moving to a more conscious organization, like those were the thought leaders that we're really in the orbit of the organization.
1: Wow, forefront, that is amazing. Well, share with us if you will, Sean, because again, so many of our listeners are just, they're so hungry to discover their purpose and they're working at it. And and, you know, they, they are looking for ways to be able to activate it. So you've gone through and done a lot of work on your shadows, on your ego, and you've done a lot of these experiences that came through Eileen Fisher. Will you share maybe one or two of them and just how they helped you? What did you do and how did they help
2: you? Yeah, I think one of the things that we looked at in the purpose work, I think so much of it comes down to the purpose work that we did. Um, and part of it was, part of the experience was to look at um, our unmet needs and to understand um, what unmet needs um, we had from childhood and how they're still playing out for us in our adulthood. Yeah. You know, so, so that examination we did. Um, but then I think, know when we really go to the place of where where our shame and discomfort is that's often the place where our purpose lies and so when we can go to that place of discomfort and, and go into it with courage and go into it and for me so much of it was my fear of men so much of it was my fear of not living up to the masculine ideal so much of it was not being considered man enough So much of it was um, how I was as a gay man, you know, positioning and posturing myself so I could be acceptable. And within that, living in that mask, how much I was living, you know, and and quite honestly, the way I was living, I had um, an amazing resume. I knew that my validity, my validation as a man could come from my credentials, my education, and the jobs that I took. So I was very conscious of that. But then, when you look at my personal life, it was anemic. You know, the inability to have close relationships, having a dating life that was always in kaputs. Um and and just you know living to work um, as opposed to working to live. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that that imbalance was an indicator. I remember going in to, to talk to our wellness director, Bradley Fisher. I was like, why do we have to have life when we can have work? It's all about, you know, it's coming from Wall Street. 80-hour weeks are amazing. You know, <laughs> and, was like, and she just looked at me with this love and compassion and just, and basically this look of like, dear boy, you will learn. And over the five years, I really learned what that integration meant and that to live a life on purpose does not mean sacrificing your life doesn't mean that when you follow the call that you can't have a meaningful life outside of the work you do Yet there's a blending between the work you do and, and the work you're called to do mm-hmm
1: as a meaning and work researcher I did discover that I found these 15 modes of engagement and um, there's lots of ways to be able to to live our purpose and express it but one of them is it's called live, living with living your purpose and it so it's just sort of this thread where it's just you and the work are sort of inseparable and you it's just who you are in the world cool. and you do it in service of others and so so somewhere in there Sean, you made this realization that you went to Eileen Fisher because you didn't want to work with men anymore, but somehow made the realization that you needed to be able to help men somehow. Yeah. So you tell if you would do two things for us, help us understand how you emerged, what was happening at Eileen Fisher to help you arrive at that point, and then I'd like to hear how you articulate your purpose today. You mentioned in the beginning, but maybe it'll be slightly different as a statement.
2: Yeah. Um, I think there were probably three moments where it really kind of became crystal clear. One, the first was five years ago. Um, I was in Barcelona and I, I was on vacation having a miserable vacation in Barcelona because I didn't know what to do on vacation. <laughs> but, okay. Um, it, Noted. It, but okay. I'm going to go back and, and relive that experience. But I got the message when I was in Barcelona that as men, we've not been socialized to socialize in healthy ways. And that just kept like following me around when I was at Arlington, when I was living in Barcelona. Then, when I was doing the purpose work with Marcelo, it kind of just kept coming through. But it was when I really declared it. I was. It was the first weekend of the being in the artist commune when I got clear like this is the work, and then everything started to fall into place. But it was when I, you know, I think at Eileen Fisher, what I started noticing was I noticed how all the experiences I was just being transformed into a better version of myself. I was more comfortable in my own skin. I was feeling transformed. I was happier. My relationships were starting to gel, and I started to have a life. But it was when I started asking other men in the company, you know, because like you said, it's an 83% women, so the the 17% of us, um, and most of the men in the company were either working in IT in the distribution center, some in throughout fashion, but kind of more of the more traditional roles, right? But I would ask these guys, I'm like, so, yo, I'm, I, I feel like I'm changing, I'm transforming. Are you, are you experiencing this? Mm-hmm. And the way it would come through for them, I was like, they'd be like, yeah, you know, my wife said that I'm, I, I listen differently, or that I'm more patient or i stopped needing to be right all the time and i started to get more curious and ask more questions i started to be more comfortable with nuanced conversation and with nuance i started to have more access to my emotional expression and i was able to and i noticed that my creativity was shifting and evolving i was able to be more more creative and more ideas and and i could ideate differently um and i think we all were saying you know when we when women are able to be their full selves in an environment like this, it automatically gives men permission to come into their full selves. So the more that we can create this equity for women to truly not fit into a model that's been forced upon them, but for them to come into their authenticity. And for for those who are, don't identify as male or female or in the, you know, non-binary or, or gender fluid, You know organizations that really um embrace the full person that's ultimately going to allow men to come into a different level of of freedom and liberation for themselves which then can unlock the power dynamics that then allow more non-male identified humans to be able to um, take greater greater roles of influence
1: beautiful sean Let's let that sit in for just a while here for our listeners and viewers and grab our first break. I'm Dr. Lise Cortez. We've been on the air with Sean Harvey, the Chief Compassion Officer and Compassionate Masculinity Guide at Symponia Men's Studio based in Washington, D.C. We've been talking about his path to purpose. After the break, we're going to get into why the world needs the work that he's doing. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Now, back to Working On Purpose.
1: Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working On Purpose. As I watched the pandemic continue on, we look for ways to help companies support their employees handle anxiety, stress, depression, and feeling disconnected while also helping lift and inspire them with ongoing professional development. So we now offer a well-being learning webinar series called Grab Your Gusto, Vital Well-Being from the Inside Out. You can learn more about it at EliseCortez.com or send me an email to Elise at EliseCortez.com. If you're just joining the program, my guest is Sean Harvey, the Chief Compassion Officer and Compassionate Masculinity Guide at Symphonious Men's Studio based in Washington, DC. Sean is contributing as a writer, speaker, and consultant to an emerging narrative around the next frontier of men's healing and transformation through compassionate masculinity and integrating compassion into traditionally masculine systems and cultures. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. So for this next segment here, Sean, I wanna get into the, you know the, what you see in the world and why you think that the, the work you're doing is so important. So one of the great things about Purpose, and you know this, is it gives us, when we stand on our own purpose, a very unique lens that only we can use to be able to see what's missing or needed in the world that we could solve. So if you would start by sharing your perspective on what's happening in our world today that provokes and makes your work with compassion so important.
2: Hmm. You know, um so the name of the company Symphonia, Symphonia is the Greek word for compassion. Hmm. I didn't so know that. I should have compassionate that. basically compassion of men's studio. Um and and I think when I, was, when I was thinking about my company and I launched January of 2019, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking, I think we were in the middle of, of, of a healthcare debate. And I was like, you know, with the politicians and I'm like, where's the compassion in this process? You know? And then I started thinking about the thing that's most needed in organizations is compassion. When we talk about woke culture, there's often a lot of judgment in it. It's like, where's the compassion? Where are we honoring people in their journeys? And now a lot of my work is with police, military, and federal law enforcement. There's a a whole opportunity for work around compassion in those spaces, both among the agencies, departments and the officers and the agents, as well as the communities that are served. And so how are we holding um, how are we holding our organizational systems from this place of love and compassion? You know, and I think at the root of, and, and I think compassion is such a beautiful um, entry point into so much of this work because it can blend, it can move between the secular and the spiritual and speak to everyone. And so, but there's a real, there's, there's an opportunity when we come, and, you know, and the way I define compassion is the awareness, and the response to preventing suffering for ourselves and others.
1: Last week, sorry Sean, please go ahead. go ahead. I was going to add in that, to that end, last week my guest was Dr. Arthur C. McCauley, who has written a book called America Reunited, where essentially he's he's putting forth, this, and I like to say these are his doctor's orders because he's a clinical psychologist, um, that what we really need in our divide is empathy and the ability to be able to sit and listen with curiosity versus throwing barbs of hatred and judgment and you know where where are where are why why when did we lose the ability to actually have discourse and to learn so i think there are so many applications to the work that you're doing and i i realize that you've launched only just a couple of years ago which is phenomenal what you've already done but i am curious when you're out talking to people who maybe don't know you um, and you tell them your title and the work that you're doing I'd love to hear the general range of responses that you get.
2: (laughs) You know, I've been talking about this for five years. I want to say one thing, though, before I go there. There's often such an association with compassion as something that's soft or weak. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And that's why I I think we need to bring the masculinity conversation in, because I think there's so much in the narrative of masculinity that defines how we look at compassion and and the soft skills. And yet, if we understand the roots of why we think the way we think, we can actually start to see compassion from a place of strength that only strengthens our masculinity. So that's why I always see when we can bridge, and I often, you know, when I was a professor, as a consultant, when when I can bridge juxtaposed ideas, like compassion and masculinity into one place, it becomes a conversation starter. I've been talking about this for five years, and quite honestly, not one person has objected to what I've said. I haven't gotten the pushback. I've gotten cynical questions, like how does this work, especially when I was just starting out in the conversation and I'm a little more clumsy, but I haven't gotten people like objecting. And I think part of that is we hear so much about toxic masculinity and healthy masculinity, healthy masculinity we're basically operating from a dualistic perspective that there's a right, wrong, good, bad, right? But if we are embracing our full humanity, we embrace our essence and our shadow. Masculinity is a construct that's outside of us. Yet so many of us have internalized it as a reflection of us. It's really what holds social conditioning that tells us our shoulds, who we should be, how we should show up and what we have access to in terms of the energies we can express and how it frames the way we look at our gender identity and expression. Hmm. But if we're able to take a step back and say, this is just a construct, and if we can embrace the construct for its essence and its shadow fully, and it's a thing, and we wrap it in compassion, what does it do to that thing? Right? And so I think when I'm talking about compassion and masculinity, it's coming from a place of love, not judgment. It's coming from a place that the masculine... So I think in some ways, historically, we've demonized the feminine, and now I think we're in an age where we're demonizing the masculine. Yes. And I think in reality, it's not about being in one direction or the other. It's really, what does it look like for each of us to embody an integration of both in a more balanced way? And when we're able to do that, when when we're out of balance, it's not, are you good, bad, right, or wrong? The question i always ask is what's the cost what's the cost if you can't tap into your feminine energy which is your nurturing caring side what's the cost if you can't tap into your your masculine which is going to be where you get things done where you move things forward where you have structure you know it's like we the more we're able to be in this balance the more we have an agility to dance in our own humanity and respond to the situation the situations coming to us in a way that just make us makes us more whole, more human, and, and more mature.
1: Oh and that's exactly why for years I've been attracted to androgyny for that very reason. Because to me it represents the possibility of being whole and complete and expressing all of ourselves and drawing from both traditionally idealistic notions of femininity and masculinity so I mean I can't even explain to you how long my 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 fascination has been with that and here it comes it's just the way you expressed it so beautifully that wholeness and completeness and authenticity it's it's beautiful thank
2: you
1: yeah so one of the things I think is really interesting about you is that you are out to help very masculine or as you say hyper masculine environments and cultures to develop compassion So I'm interested in what kinds of organizations are good prospects for you. You already mentioned that, I think you said you were working with military and police. I didn't catch what else. But what other organizations are good prospects that maybe in listening to this, they didn't quite recognize that they were something, a good prospect to work with you?
2: I think in reality, 90% of all organizational systems and institutions are based on a masculine model. Yeah. Uh, And and those masculine models don't allow, haven't allowed for the feminine expression. And we're starting to see HR practices that embody this. We just don't talk, of we just don't call it, you know, coming from the feminine. Um, But in reality, we're trying to, a lot of times we're we're creating policies and procedures that are band-aids on environments that are competitive, environments that um, are very results driven that are very quantifiable and don't really account for the human experience. You know, they're based on productivity, not as much on the human experience. And even as we move into this, this idea of human-centered workplace design, the question I always have is, you know, that's, that's an amazing concept, but are we really shifting the systems and the policies in a way that allowed for someone to come into their full power from their authentic being into an organization and be accepted and be appreciated? Or are we going to say they're not a cultural fit?
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: so I think it's very, I think right now we're in a period where we're trying to figure this out. There's a lot of well-intentioned ideas and I, and, I, and there's there are practices that work. The question is how deep are we going in terms of of really reshaping organizations and rethinking them? And can organizational systems be redesigned in a more integrated way, a more inclusive way, a more conscious way, a more compassionate way that allows us to be connected in new ways?
1: Well, we're having this conversation, you and I, in June of 2021, and there is research out there today that says that about 50% of the workforce, at least in North America, plans to change jobs this year. And part of that is just due to the pent-up frustration and restlessness of being in the pandemic. Some of it has to do with not feeling connected to their company. Much of it has to do with not feeling valued and appreciated. And then you have this whole notion of what's called the Great Resignation that's happening out there, where people uh, there was a that the pandemic has really started to showcase why the work that we do that we do and the way we do it is not working. So in my view, now right now is a perfect time to have a conversation about how can we look at our cultures and the way that we treat and manage our people to bring in more of this compassion because it will make them want to stay longer and give more of their all versus voting with their feet.
2: Yeah. You know, I've I've been in D.C. for about nine weeks now since coming here. I've been asked to do this work, bring compassion and masculinity into police departments, federal law enforcement, like I said, military um, to work with uh, white, straight evangelical men, to work with black men from historically black colleges and universities, to work with um, aeronautical corporations. Um, in aerospace um and now to work with the nfl and so i think um there's a need and i, I you know and know when i talk to folks in ngos when i talk to people in the government when i talk to people in and startups there's still an opportunity to, to rethink how we're considering organization design how we're thinking about the systems and, and how we're thinking about the leadership practices that move from this place of fear-based control to compassion-based empowerment.
1: Mm. How beautiful. So before we go into our next segment here, I think this makes sense at this point here now. If you would say a little bit about your soul's calling, and at your core, why you do this work, and of course, how your journey has led you to it. You've kind of sprinkled along through our conversation. But now, if you could, bring it together for us so we can thread, thread it all through and see what it really is
2: so uh this was not this was not the plan of my parents i was supposed (laughs) to be i was supposed to be a third third generation long-haul trucker um and boy did you screw up i I so screwed up um and you mentioned androgyny and so um probably from like seven like probably yeah i mean probably from like seven to about 12 years old maybe 13 i was pretty androgynous um, people couldn't tell if I was a boy or a girl. Often people thought I was a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had so much shame around that I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even like correct them. So it wasn't even like I was choosing to be gender fluid. It was like androgyny had, had chosen me. And, and I was living from that perspective. So I, I think I've been part of this conversation exploration since I was very young, very conscious of it. And then I came out as gay, a gay, a gay man when I was 15, I started a gay and lesbian youth group for the city of Dayton, Ohio, when I was 16, which still exists today. And often that was my barometer of making career decisions over time was, what was that thing I did at 16 that was when my heart was, was flush with possibility and I was creating and ideating and creating something that still exists today, 31 years later. And, um, and then I, I, Went off to college, and uh, I thought I was going to study corporate finance and work on Wall Street as a Wall Street dude. Um, and I ended up studying industrial and organizational psychology, and then just my path went in that direction. But I think um, studying organizational change first, being a professor, um, and, and teaching for ten years, working on Wall Street, then working in fashion, then going to seminary. Um, being a gay activist back in the day um i just think so many of these things gave me some some perspectives and i just think it's 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 it still blows me away that that i'm i'm talking to you know cops and fbi agents and former fbi agents and military folks and marines and about compassion as a as a queer man doing this and 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 they're listening you know, and someone someone from uh, Quantico said to me recently, you know, he said um, you know, with the police work, he said, Sean, you're not, you're not, he had listened to me for two and a half hours. And like, this was sort of a test, right? Like, how is he going to receive this? You know, and he said, I can't object to anything you've just said. Nothing that you said is off-putting to me. He said... You're not training cops to be better cops. You're developing officers into better humans. Who can argue with that? And I think when we take, take everything that's going on in, in the world, right, and we, we take the division and we take the, the, the perceptions and we take the problems, yet when we take someone back to their core humanity and say, we give you permission to be human, I think that's what opens the door to all the other change. But we're trying to create the change without getting people to come into their humanness. And we're not seeing each other human to human, soul to soul. And I think that's where we we lose out on actually trying to create the bridges that we need to create to innovate and solve the challenges that are in front of us. And we're trying to force upon, you have to change so that this can work as opposed to, Come into your own heart, come into your own your own relationship with, with love, self-love, and then ask how you love others. And when you're in that frame of mind and you take the judgment out and the rightness out and the righteousness out of it, then you have an opportunity to say, so now what's possible in our connection when we can see each other in this more soulful, more human and more humane way?
1: And with that, I'm going to take us into our last break. So listeners and viewers, if you would, just reflect a bit on what Sean said about his journey and how how far back he could trace it back. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with Sean Harvey, the Chief Compassion Officer and Compassionate Masculinity Guide at Symphonium and Studio based in Washington, D.C. We've been talking about his path to purpose. After the break, we're going to talk about the work that he does and how it makes a difference. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Now, back to Working On Purpose.
1: Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working On Purpose. I mentioned after the first break about the Grab Your Gusto Well-Being web, web, webinar learning series. The content of that program came from the part one of my recently published book called Purpose Ignited, How Inspiring Leaders Ignite Passion and Elevate Cause which is now available on Amazon. I wrote that book to awaken readers to their passion and purpose and help transform them into inspirational leaders who enliven the workplace and elevate the contribution of the business to all stakeholders. So that's where the content came from you're just joining us, my guest today from Washington, D.C. is Sean Harvey of the Symphonia Men's Study. He is also contributing as a writer, speaker, and consultant to an emerging narrative around the next frontier of men's healing and transformation through compassionate masculinity and integrating compassion into t- traditionally masculine systems and cultures. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. So for this last bit of time together here, Sean, I wanted to get into some of the work that you do so that our, our listeners and viewers can better understand how they might access you and and how you might be able to help them. So you you describe your your work at Symponia as a leadership institute dedicated to helping the next generation of compassion-centered bridge builders, facilitators, leaders, and change makers equipped to form authentic and purpose-driven communities, innovate collaboratively, redefine leadership models, reimagine systems and structures, and transform cultures. That's just awesome work. So would you just say a little bit about the the kind of work that you're principally doing? What are you principally focused on? Obviously,
2: men and cultures. So, you know, I, I thought about this, um, like, who's my audience? I and mean, I guess these days it's, who's your avatar? And to create the scale that I'm envisioning, this really is working with that level you talked about, what I consider the lever points. So I'm not really the guy for everyone. Um, I typically work with the facilitators, the bridge builders, the change makers, and the leaders um, who can create scale. If if the message can come to them, then it can go into the systems that they operate in. And so then bringing in a compassion-centered, soul-inspired approach and bringing people into that deeper level of consciousness, what I've found is that's where I've been. And now when I bring it to the work with men, it's really still operating at that level. And the, the intellectual part, the compassionate part, and the soulful part are so intertwined, I can't tease them out. Yeah. And so it just comes through, and I think it's, it's part of what comes through in the flow um, to really, I think, all these pieces have been building blocks um, to be able to create experiences. Now, so studios. Studios are basically retreats. Um, it's just that there's something about the, the language I use are boot camps, so compassion boot camp, compassion and masculinity lab, and a men's studio. So really an introduction into compassion, the play of more of like a, a, a lab of how do we experiment and, and play with compassion and masculinity. How do they work and how, how do we how do we move from experiencing compassion to expressing compassion? And then, how do we do the deeper inner work in the studio that allows us to really come into our wholeness? Um, you know, then there's another piece of the work that's been really near and dear to me. And I think is so, it's part of my journey. I think it's a struggle for so many men, which is um, retreats for men on the relationship to love, sex, and intimacy. Because I believe that if we want to be true bridge builders, we have to get in relationship with our own ability to be in like intimacy with ourselves and others, because in so many ways we're often disconnected. And the way I often describe it is, you know, for so many of us, there's the intimacy that we desire and yearn for. There's a love that we often misunderstand and there's a sex that we settle for.
1: Mm.
2: And we often get them confused And it often creates a lot of turmoil for us as we're figuring out how to have healthy relationships, healthy families, and to find our partners. And so, and that all translates then into how we create friendships. You know, the statistic that I've seen a study often says men stop making friends at 35. And often they will take on the friends of their wives or their Mm -hmm. significant others. And so that factor of loneliness, disconnection. so profound and there's often not the coping skills for men to be able to to have to get their get those needs met so that's often where we then go into these issues of alcoholism drug abuse suicide sex addiction porn addiction whatever that may be is finding the coping mechanism that's going to work for us but it's like it's still not for leading us into healthier ways of being that actually give us a fulfilling life
1: that was a beautiful rendition of of what you're addressing and how you're lifting and one of the reasons i keep hosting the show sean after six years i think your episode number 331 is because i continue to learn from my from my guests they teach me they elevate me so the conceptual part of the show is really important because it's the educational inspiration component but now if you would next i ask you to think a little bit about an example of of a group that you've worked with and helped so that our our listeners and viewers and understand you know who who are you working with why did they think they want to work with you because we know sometimes the why becomes different along the way and what were the results what was what, what was different afterwards
2: yeah, yeah. you know um I'll, I'll go most recent so at the beginning of the pandemic i started something called facilitator edge which was creating a space for facilitators because when i when i saw you know, we were going into this pandemic and I was like, whoa, every facilitator around the world just had their, their, their world rock because they can't facilitate in-person events and mm-hmm. in meetings, <laughs> right? It's like they're, they're the, they either have to learn Zoom, they were losing contracts. And because that's, that's part of my community, I said, you know, maybe there's an opportunity. And, and so I created something called Facilitator Edge, which was a weekly conversation for facilitators. And it was really, how do we create meaningful connection in virtual spaces? How do we continue to keep our communities thriving in the virtual world? And how do we need to evolve to hold the space? And really, it's as we see the crumbling systems around us, the systems that are being dismantled, we haven't rebuilt them. So we're kind of in this, 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 um, this place of unknowing right now. As facilitators how do we hold the space for the unknowing and how do, how do we get in touch with our own um ability to surrender and flow in the not knowing and and, and be in the emergent? and so uh we we did that for about a year and uh we reached 575 facilitators from 15 countries wow having just you know just through linkedin And just, you know, connections. And and then there were people that just kept continuing with me. And that morphed into, you know, I became a minister, an interfaith minister, last June. So it was actually a year ago this week I became an interfaith minister. And I then launched something called Soulful Facilitation. Um, How do we bring soul into the spaces that we hold? And how do we create sacred space? And how do we start to move from tools, techniques, and strategies into the surrender of art and ceremony. And now with men's work, it'll be art ceremony and initiation and uh, ritual ceremony and initiation. And so that those conversations then led to a training program that I do called the Soulful Facilitator Intensive. And really, I think it was this blend of facilitators coming into a more uh, deeper sense of themselves Relaxing the ego, getting off the script, and the ability to flow with the energy of the space. And and this thing that I often say as facilitators, contrary to popular belief, the more invisible we become as facilitators, the more powerful the containers we create because we make it less about us. And it's that dance of we're in, often intelligent human beings. We don't need to tell people how smart we are and we can actually just let the embodiment of our ability to hold that space, showcase our ability. And so it's the dance of the ego. Um, and so that's really been transformative. And now um, I've been one foot in and one foot out with the men's work for the last five years and definitely for the last two and a half years out of fear, out of scarcity, out of this is impractical. I should do something more practical and more mainstream but the way the spiritual journey works and the way the spiritual call works is you can run away, but you can't hide because it's gonna find you. It's gonna keep reminding you that this is your work. And so now I'm 100% all in on the men's work. And so I don't have as many stories to tell because this is really in its its, its infancy. It's been conceptualizing and I've been doing my own work to be able to hold the work in the ways that it needs to um, and, and I'm settling into the comfort of, of knowing that, and knowing that now I'm ready to, in some ways, walk into the lion's den and really hold these conversations and hold the healing, the possibility, and the transformation to men to come for men to come into their best selves. Without trying to hold an agenda that it needs to look like anything other than what, the, what is authentic to them, and liberates them into their their full possibility and into their full humanity.
1: That is a fantastic way to finish, Sean. What a beautiful, beautiful narration, rendition. And it's completely palpable that you're in that space, that journey. And I'm so happy to know you. I'm so happy to share you with our listeners across the the globe who need your message and your work desperately. Um, And I want to thank you very much for saying yes to being on the show and yes to sharing so beautifully.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: You're so welcome. Listeners and viewers, if you want to learn more about Sean and the work that he's doing, it's easiest just to start to go to symponiamen.com. Let me spell that for you S Y M P O N I A M O N? Yes, M O N. M E yeah. N? M E N. M M-E-N. E M-E-N. N.com. Symponian.com. Symponianmen.com. Yeah. Sorry, I want to make sure you can find him. Um, and he just created this fresh as well. So he's just got some brand new information on it and lots of resources and things that he can share with you. Thanks again to our, our partnering sponsor, Work Proud, which helps companies build a platform where your workforce receives meaningful feedback. And thanks for the work from people across your company. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch it recorded podcast. We were on the air with Dr. Arthur Sir McCauley, a fourth time guest, this time talking about his latest book, America Reunited, a relational solution to bridging the political, social and personal chasm dividing our nation. Next week, we'll be on air with Frank Calderoni, who is the chairman and CEO of of Anapan, and the author of Upstanding, How Company Character Catalyzes Loyalty, Agility, and Hypergrowth, in which he argues that a character-led culture is not just for reputation, but integral to the strategy of every winning company. See you there. Remember, that works at least a third of our lives, so let's work on purpose.